Welcome to the Inner Times podcast. I'm your host, Jan Willem Prügel, and today's topic is number systems. With me to discuss this topic is Dr. Alan Walker, a junior research fellow in pure mathematics at Trinity College, Cambridge. Previously, he was a DPhil student at Magdalen College, Oxford, where he began this very podcast series in 2016, and which I am taking over now, and this is sort of our handover episode. He has also held postdoctoral positions at McGill University, Université de Montréal, and at the Institute Mittag Leffler in Stockholm. And from January 2022, he will be a lecturer in pure mathematics at King's College London. Our second guest is Ella Boot. She's a final year undergraduate in maths at Trinity College, Oxford, and is more on the applied side of maths interested uh, in networks and opinion dynamics. And finally, uh, we have Alvaro Gonzalez Hernandez from Spain. He was a master's student at St. Peter's College, Oxford in um, uh, 21, uh, 2021, 20 and 21. Um, And he just graduated and is now a PhD student in arithmetic geometry at the University of Warwick. We talk about number systems today, which means different types of numbers. So rational numbers, whole numbers, natural numbers. What are these different systems? How did they come about? And why do we need them? We talk about the history of numbers. We talk about the philosophical concept of a number. So is it something that has always existed or is it something that man made up? These are some of the things that we will um, discuss and try to illuminate a bit for you guys. We also talk about um, infinity, meaning is there something bigger than infinity? So if you say infinity times two, does that mean that it's larger than infinity? We will find out, so stay tuned for that. Also, please check out our show notes where we where you can read more on what our guests prepared And uh, so you can delve deeper into the material if you like. So they did a great job. They put a lot of effort in it. So, you know, just download the PDF document if you'd like. Also, subscribe to the podcast to get our next episodes. We have the next one already uh, produced and that episode will go up soon. But for now, please enjoy this episode on number systems. I want you to listen to me. Not just long, oratory, bombastic, Churchillian circumlocutions. He's no longer a follower of Marx. He's loving Engels instead. Science is interesting, and if you don't agree, you can fuck off. It's just, I would just like to welcome you uh, to the podcast, and thank you so much for coming. Uh, this is the first official episode of the In Our Spare Times Um podcast and uh, I have the pleasure of also um, having Alad as a previous host here and um, so we um, can talk about or our today's topic is um, number systems. I'm happy to um, ask you guys a few a number of systems, um, ask you guys a, a few questions on this and um, you have all prepared notes for this and you said you uh, shared them before. So we all uh, were able to have a look 
and um, I found them really interesting and will be basing some of my questions on them. I found that really helpful. But of course, you know, you guys are not expected to have read each other's notes. It was more um, for interest. And um, if you saw any points that you would like to add on. Um, the way I envision um, uh, this is that I would ask certain questions and I would usually direct a question to one person in particular, um, but then anybody can chime in and add to what has been said without you know, the necessity of me having to direct the word to that person. And sometimes I might just uh, give open questions and you know, we will try to approximate a regular conversation. That said, I'm uh, very happy to talk about number systems and you guys are all mathematicians, which makes it really interesting. And many people here um, listening to this will probably not be an expert in maths. So um, this is a real opportunity to learn something. And um, Alad, you in particular um, wrote uh, show notes that even uh, contained a, a short and brief story that I found really interesting, and it was on Frank Nelson Cole. Could you share this story with our listeners? Uh, so, uh, Jan, this is a certain anecdote that has been passed down through the mathematical uh, community. Um, it does begin in a basis of truth, but it was embellished in this particular uh, book written by, by Bell in the 1950s. But the story is as follows. So this, this math professor, Frank Nelson Cole, at a meeting in 1903, of the American Mathematical Society. So it's a very esteemed mathematical society. And what did he do? He said nothing. He just walked to the blackboard and carefully calculated two to the power 67 minus one. Okay, so he took two and he did two times two and two times two times two gets two to the power three. So he did that 67 times and then subtracted one. And that gives you a very long number. It's a number with... Uh, I, uh, 21 digits. Um, okay, so he did that on one blackboard, and then on an adjacent blackboard, board, he performed a long multiplication of two numbers. He, he multiplied 193,707,721 by 761,838,257,287. Okay, this took him most of the hour to do. Uh, and then the two final answers match. And so two 21 digit numbers are both the same. And then he sit down, uh, he sat down to rapturous applause. Okay, the story survives because it's a kind of very theatrical story, but also because it's really unusual that in general, this is not what mathematicians do. It's not what number theorists do. I'm a number theorist. It's not what I do all day. Um, but uh, it's... Uh, I know it, 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 it's. Uh, I I told you the story almost as a contrasting anecdote, uh, as what generally we don't mean when we're talking about number systems. In general, we don't mean ever increasingly complicated calculations with the usual counting numbers. We tend to mean, as I'm sure we'll hear about in the rest of the uh, the podcast, expanding our usual notion of number to more abstract and richer notions of number 
and understanding what implications that has. Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for bringing in and breaking us into this uh, topic. Now, you um, used the word number there quite a few times, and especially lay people like me, when we hear a number, we usually don't think about this. We sort of take it for granted. Now, um, this is one of the topics where if you look a little closer and try to um, look behind the facade of what the construct of number is, you may face a few complications and questions that may be a little unsettling. So that is why I would like to dig down deeper into what a number is. Ella, um, in your notes, um, I found a really interesting and also something I have to admit, something new um, for me, at least um, an idea of what a number is and also the certain um, philosophical standpoints that you could understand a number from. Uh, could you give um, us a short explanation of what uh, those are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought this was a really interesting place to start, even though I'm, I'm far from a pure mathematician and I'm not a philosopher. Um, it's just a, a question that you can easily find different perspectives on and disagree on even with people who you know, aren't, aren't mathematicians at all. Um, the question, what is a number? Um, we kind of take it for granted. We all, all come across them in school. You learn to count. You find change at a supermarket. You know, um, you start learning about irrational numbers. You work with pi in school. But what actually is a number? Um, do numbers exist without the human mind being there to use them and imagine them? Do they say something about our world? Are they completely separate from that? Do they arise because we have these physical things around us that we can measure? Or is it just a game that we play? So the kind of three most prominent, I, I would say, um, schools of thinking about this are formalism, intuitionism, and logicism. And just to give a brief overview, um, formalism is basically the idea that all these numbers and equations and symbols, they have no actual meaning. They're just some sort of game. We have certain strings of syntax and we get to rearrange with them and mess with them according to certain rules. So we've made this game where we have the number one, two, three, four. When you add two and three, you get the number five. That's how we've defined this game. And with that, we can do lots of you know, very difficult and interesting things. Um, intuitionism is more the idea that um, Numbers are just a mental exercise. They're constructed by people in their minds, and they don't reveal properties of the physical world around us, but they're used by the human mind to analyze more complex mental constructs, so to kind of analyze what the world around us is doing. So in essence, it's the idea that numbers only exist when there are humans around to think them up, and then we also apply them to the world. Um, so billions of years ago, numbers didn't exist. There was no concept of, you know, there are three trees in this valley. 30 days since this extinction, that those numbers weren't there because there were no humans to think of them. And logicism is roughly the idea that maths can be reduced to logic, which was initialized by Frege um, and found some of its biggest proponents in Russell and Dedekind after Dedekind concluded that um, natural numbers were reducible to sets and mappings, so it could be reduced to logic. Um, yeah, those are kind of the three biggest ones. So that is fascinating, Ella. Um, I also read something that you said or wrote um, about that sometimes um, there people think that numbers aren't just an, a construct, but they're actually something real. And you mentioned uh, the term Platonism. Can you say something about that? Um, yeah. So Platonism is the idea that um, numbers do exist in the real world, and we've kind of created a mental image of them. So numbers are kind of real, non-physical things. 
And what do we mean by this? We say that numbers are real, meaning they exist outside of our minds. So independent of a human being around to, to count a quantity or talk about it or think about it, it still exists. Um, but of course, they're non-physical. You're not going to bump into the number 24 on the street. You can't pick up the number five. Um, in a sense, you can think of it as the logic. Kind of something has the potential to exist, so it does exist. So you know, millions of years ago, there were 10 dinosaurs on a hill, and no one was around to count them. But if someone were there, they could have been counted. There would have been exactly 10, so that number 10 always existed, because the potential for someone to describe that quantity existed. Um, and I, I really like this idea to have a kind of segue into why that's a nice way of thinking for me. Um, it kind of helped me accept that we can define things into existence in maths. It's kind of a weird jump when you go into undergrad, you start being told, you know, let there be a group with the properties X, Y, Z. Let there be a number such that this is true. And you think, well, it can't be true. A nice example is at A-level when you first um, meet complex numbers and you reach the square root of minus one and you think, well, that's complete. That's completely crazy. Of course, that doesn't exist. But accepting the, the potential for something to exist mean that it does help me kind of say, okay, let's go with it. I can imagine a number that could do this. So I can imagine some sort of thing that has this property and so it's real. Let's use it. But if I might chime in here on this very nice little tripartite uh, world that Ella described for us of, of the uh, the formalists, the intuitionists, and the uh, the logicians, um, the the big battle of this was taking place in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, in, in mathematics. And to kind of cut a long story short, the intuitionists lost, in the sense that this is not to say that intuitionists don't exist anymore, but the majority of professional working mathematicians would basically be formalists at heart, albeit they won't write in a formal language, but they will go to sleep at night knowing that underlying what they're writing is a formal basis, based in logic and set theory, that uh, is underpinning what they do. So the, the, this is the, uh, the Hilbert-Brower uh, controversy, which um, I believe actually is still, it's kind of an idiom in German, at least, about something that's, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of like a storm in a teacup in English. There's like a German phrase of like, oh, it's as irrelevant as the Hilbert-Brow controversy or something like this. Um, but yeah, Brow was the intuitionist and Hilbert was the, uh, the formalist and Hilbert won, basically. <laughs> um, so that is something interesting. You say Hilbert won. Um, as a as a layman again, do, how do you win such a fight? Is it simply who believes, you know, where who's the majority, or can you disprove the other? So the sense that I, I used it was in uh, just a sense of academic culture. Hilbert, as well as being an astonishingly productive mathematician in his own right, had an enormous number of PhD students. And these students would go on to become just the leading luminaries of the first half of the 20th century of mathematics in universities throughout Europe and in the US. And so if you manage to influence enough people with your way of constructing mathematics and how you think mathematics should, should work, then that's the way in which, I mean, Hilbert won. Hilbert had many more descendants than Brouwer did, mathematically, you know, academically speaking, um, regarding his PhD students. Um, for instance, the um, you know when we teach analysis one to first year undergraduates, this is the logical underpinnings of calculus, which we might come to discuss later in, in the podcast. The methods that we use to do that, Brouwer would not have accepted as valid because they're not valid in the intuitionist uh, framework. 
because of various uses of axioms of infinity. Um, however, the world over, we teach analysis one the way we do because Hilbert won and Brouwer lost. <laughs> I would like to add that sometimes things are not as simple as saying who won or who lost, because I have observed that in different countries they have different way of teaching mathematics. So I think, I think that there's overall a constant war in mathematics about how are things defined and how some concepts are more useful to analyze certain problems or not. And at the end, the ideas that are more ingenious are the ones who stay. But the other ideas also stay sometimes in this like coexistent state where two concepts can be used um, for solving different problems. Interesting. Alvaro, uh, you just said that um, different cultures or, or countries teach mathematics differently. Uh, that is something I've never thought about, really. Can, do you have a, um, an example, maybe, um, something that people can relate to? Well, I think um, I studied my undergrad in, the, in Spain, and also I studied in high school in Spain. And one of the things that strike me the most is that in the UK, they do long division different than, differently than in Spain. They put the numbers in the other, in the reverse direction, so the first time, like I was in a, I, I can't remember in which course it was, but the professor did a long division in the board. And he was like, is everything clear? And I couldn't see what he was doing because I was so used to doing it in a different way that I really couldn't understand what it was. So it is, it is safe to say that there's much difference on how maths is taught in some places in the world compared to others. And of course, I feel like the UK and Spain are quite close. So if we went to completely different countries, we could find things are even more striking. Interesting. So, and you guys are all um, mathematicians uh, in, uh, so you've, you've uh, spent quite a bit of time doing maths in the academic context. Would you say, do you even, so um, Ella um, nicely explained uh, the different, some, of, some of the different philosophical approaches. Do you guys ever think about this or is this, is this really just um, more of an ivory tower type of thinking that is there, but that's not really relevant today in today's academic mathematic culture anymore? What do you guys think? Um, well, I'll... I'm interested to hear what uh, Ella and Alvaro have to say, but I can answer your question in a very concrete way, which is that my latest paper was actually exactly on this issue, albeit it wasn't uh, described as such. But there's a, a notion in uh, mathematics of an effective constant or an ineffective constant. And if I just describe this very briefly, an effective constant is one which could, in principle, be calculated and worked out. So maybe in your maths paper, because doing so would be extremely complicated to do, you don't actually do this calculation explicitly, but in principle, you could do it. We call this an effective constant. But curiously, there are constants that appear that are ineffective constants, where actually the nature of the argument um, means that there's no calculation that could be done to actually work out a value of this constant. Th these things come up when you use the illogical law of the excluded middle. So you're, you're basically arguing by contradiction. You, there's not, not a constant, and therefore there is a constant, but that doesn't tell you exactly what it is. Um, and there are results all over mathematics, all over well, number theory, my field, 
which are now known, but with ineffective constants. And that's a limited knowledge. You know, it tells you something, but it doesn't help you push further and do further calculation because it's an ineffective result. And so, you know, there are lots of people in the fields who go about their business trying to prove effective results where previously only ineffective ones were used. And this comes right down to this difference between like um, intuitionism and formalism. So in intuitionism, one of the central tenets is that the law of the excluded middle is not universally applicable. And so in intuitionism, there are no ineffective constants. There are only effective constants. Whereas in formalism, you can have ineffective constants because you're allowed to use the law of the excluded middle all the time. Um, okay, that's my long answer to the question, but uh, I'm interested to hear, hear others. I mean, I think I'm not at the, I'm not in a position to discuss the academic world at my current stage. Um, I'm a final year undergraduate, um, so my answer will be a lot less, a lot less technical than Alad's. But um, it's something that I don't think about when I, as part of my degree or when I do any sort of maths. Um, but it is something that I've just always found interesting, kind of as a as a side thought. I remember I wanted to study maths for a long time, and when I was twelve, at some point. Um, father of a friend of mine who is a philosopher or did philosophy at university asked me oh that's so interesting you want to study math so, so what is a number and I remember being absolutely terrified and sitting there going oh my god I actually don't know um so yeah it's just an interesting thing an interesting thing to consider and leads yeah um I think just is an interesting point of discussion for people who might otherwise really be terrified of maths which is a common reaction you get when you say you study maths at university first response is always ah I sucked at maths at school. Terrible. Hate it. <laughs> so it's a nice, yeah, it's a nice lead into that. <laughs> so uh, I was going to say that I'm just in the middle point between Ella and Alet. I don't think about these kinds of like debates in my normal life, but the more I get into the academic world, the more often these kind of questions appear naturally when trying to solve problems and try to try to answer some questions about numbers. Awesome. Thank you. That, that's been really in interesting, especially because you all have a slightly different take on it, um, which may also be, you know, uh, due to different posi uh, d different positions you guys are in right now, uh, but it may also be um, some different influences. So that is uh, very, very um, exciting. And also I find it interesting that uh, Ella talked about how uh, different professors have uh, different PhD students and they will sort of um, proselytize um, the, the gospel of their certain uh, work and, and thinking because that is something that um, is also prevalent in the area of law. And I wouldn't have thought that uh, something as pure as, ma as mathematics, but of course I don't really know what, what that means anyways. Um, could uh, has something similar, but it's it's fascinating to me absolutely. Um, now we um, the 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 topic of this whole thing is number systems, and so far we have been talking about uh, some of the theoretical um, bases bases for this, and uh, I'm now curious about. So when we talk about numbers, um, we have different types of numbers, as I am told, and as I have. Um, begun to learn from your notes. I, I'm sure I m might have learned it in school as well, but I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> no pun intended. But um, <laughs> uh, 
but I, I found what you guys wrote really interesting. Um, Alvaro, can you maybe give us a brief overview of some of the most of the key um, uh, number systems, I would guess, and maybe we can then um, open the discussion to the history of it. But maybe for just for somebody who doesn't really know what types of numbers there are, can you uh, show us around a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, like, if we um, dismiss and ignore LS discussion for uh, a second, a number is something that we can kind of all picture in our head what it is. It's something that is called, that is used to label, to count, to measure. So, I think around 44 million years ago, uh, there were some bones that were found by archaeologists with some tally counts on them. So those were the first instance of counting on how numbers were registered. The numbers that we know, one, two, three, four, that we use for counting are what mathematicians usually called natural numbers because they have like this natural aspect to it. Um, but later it was discovered and it was used um, when numbers were used to count and we start getting uh, people into debt, people that owe things to other people. Uh, we discovered the concept of negative numbers. And we, of course, we discovered the concept of zero, which to us, it may sound, it may seem natural right now, but in the people in the past, zero was not a very natural number um, to consider. So when we have the natural numbers, the zero and the negative numbers, that's what mathematicians call the integers. I didn't want to put it in the middle, but you said 44 million years ago. Did you mean 4 million or when these bone tallies? Oh, yeah, I think I, I meant 44,000. Oops. <laughs> I mean, oh, okay. So because they were man-made. Yeah, they were man-made. Yeah, no, 44 million sounds a lot. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Awesome. Um, so that that is really helpful as a first uh, as a first overview. Um, Ella and Alad, um, what do you before we go into um, the history of the individual ones? Any any general things you want to add on number different number types? Um, so Alvaro, just uh, to get us going, has been talking about the the whole numbers. Um, I think once we start talking about the the history, um, whole numbers come in sort of at the, at the same time as uh, fractions. So we'll, we'll, we'll give them kind of a different name soon. But if you have a whole number and divide by a different whole number, uh, that's something we call a rational number. And this is another type of, of number system that we'll, we'll talk about as well. Okay, interesting. So maybe then let's, let's go into the... Uh... A historical development of individual numbers and number systems, and um, I, th I think your notes on this were uh, magnificent. And maybe you could uh, start us off with that, and also uh, do not um, uh, spare us, um, or actually uh, tell us about also, please, if you could, um, the interesting story about how apparently finding out. I think a negative or a complex number got somebody somebody killed um, in ancient Greece. Um, that would be really interesting. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll come to that uh, that anecdote towards the uh, towards the end of what I have to say. Um, yeah, so the, the the ancient Greeks thought about mathematics in a very geometric way. 
And so a lot of their concepts seem just kind of strange and very foreign to us because they thought less about numbers as a kind of one, two, three, four, five, but more about lengths. So for them, numbers had a very physical uh, manifestation. So instead of the number one, they would talk about a unit line segment, a line segment which defined to have length one. Okay, so instead of the number five, you now have a line segment, which is, you know, five lots of the unit line segment laid end to end. Okay, but in doing so, you know, they can construct all the whole numbers, at least all the positive whole numbers. Um, but it means that some of the, the number theory arguments that they wrote that come down to us just look really strange. So um, the... Uh, Euclid's proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers, which is now a kind of very staple little three-line proof that, that's uh, given either at school or at, at university. Um, if you look in how Euclid in the third century BC actually went to write it, it looks so strange because it's all about geometry because instead of numbers, they're using lengths. Um, but anyway, so that's a kind of introduction to how the Greeks thought. And so when they're dealing with proportions between different lengths, they're dealing with fractions. You have a, a line segment of length five and another line segment of length seven. Then the proportion between one and the other is like the fraction five divided by seven. So that's how rational numbers came into their, their mathematics. And, and notice that the word ratio survives in this number rational in, in the nomenclature. So that's kind of why we call them rational numbers, because they're to do with these ratios between different lengths. Um, the, uh, the thing that you, you, you mentioned uh, in your, your question is to do with the problem between what we, uh, the Greeks would call uh, commensurable uh, lengths and incommensurable lengths. So what this means is that if you have two different lengths, which are both common multiples of a common unit line segment. We call them, the Greeks we call them, uh, commensurable lengths. And it's because they're a fraction, right? So again, one is five times the unit length, one is seven times the unit length. You get a rational number, five divided by seven. But the problem is that not all ratios are commensurable. There are some that are incommensurable. And this is what you get if, say, you take a square, and you take the ratio between the length of the diagonal of a square and the length of the side length of that same square. It turns out that that's an incommensurable ratio. Now, there is an anecdote which comes down to us about a member of the Pythagorean school who was the first to discover that incommensurable ratios exist, in particular that this ratio exists. And that this discovery was so diabolic, it was such a, a pro problematic discovery for Greek mathematics that he was thrown off the boat on which <laughs> the whole posse were traveling. Um, this is a much repeated anecdote. It's almost certainly false <laughs> because almost all the, um, well, I, all of the sources we have about Pythagoras's life come from Roman times, come from like the first century AD and later. Whereas he was living in his school, uh, was, was living um, in about the 6th century BC. And so, you know, you should always take with a massive pinch of salt anything that's said with any detail about the, uh, the wider culture of the Pythagoreans. I mean, Pythagoras certainly existed. He's recounted and he becomes almost mythic figure. 
throughout later Greek uh, civilization. But um, but yes, it's a great story and probably a false one, unfortunately. Um, but uh, perhaps the f- final thing I'll, I'll say, I've been hogging the floor for a long time, is that the Greeks did work out how to deal with a theory of proportion involving incommensurable ratios. So this was um, the uh, great work of the, uh, the greatest mathematician you've never heard of called Eudoxus, who, uh, in my opinion, is every bit as great as Archimedes, who is much more well-known. But he constructed a theory of proportion, which is a startlingly modern idea, uh, and I won't have time to sort of technically describe it in this uh, forum, but he enables incommensurable ratios to be brought into the same type of mathematics as commensurable ratios as rational numbers. And so this uh, constructed something we now call the real numbers, which perhaps I'll let uh, Elo Alvaro continue the story from there. Wonderful. Um, so I can tell you also enjoy myth busting after you have ruined uh, the, the imitation game for us, Elliot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. No, no. Uh, the truth uh, always wins in the end. So thank you. It's been very helpful. Um, uh, Ella, do you want to uh, um, continue talking about the um, um, real numbers um, as, a, as a next step? Um, you know what? I would actually leave that to okay, Alvaro. Sure, sure. I think you guys have much better notes on this. Sure. Um, I just, yeah, I try to uh, space it out. Al- Alvaro, uh, what's your what's your take on real numbers? Well, real numbers, in fact, it's something that um, informally is quite hard to describe because most of the descriptions of real numbers are k- kind of formal, are like proof and very mathematical. Mm-hmm. But For our listeners, I would um, suggest that when they think about real numbers, think about anything, like everything that we know for sure, like the probability they will rain tomorrow, the height of the Queen of England. I don't know. Anything that you can think of is kind of a real number. In those real numbers, we have the rational numbers, which are the fractions. And we also have the rational numbers, which are the ones that Alec has called incommensurable, mm-hmm. but that we generally call irrationals, such as, for example, the square root of 2, e, or pi. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, you, uh, can you explain what e and i exactly is? So e is, um, well, <laughs> how, how can I explain e? I'm sorry, you know, e is when I ask something like this, I don't know how how, how complicated that is maybe if it's if it's something insanely like if i ask what a number is so it i, I didn't want to make it too complicated um oh no 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 so okay I, i just need to think about it um e is a very important constant that appears in everything that is related to growth mm-hmm. in fact is what gives number gives name to exp- to the term exponential growth oh, okay when we mentioned exponential growth, what it is behind is that we are elevating something to a power of e. And pi, on the other hand, is um, the ratio between uh, the circumference of a circle or the length of a circle and its diameter. That's pi, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, pi. and i? 
Oh, i is not a real number. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I can explain it later. Oh, you said uh, pi earlier. I understood pi. I said pi, oh, I'm yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. Um, I am sorry. Yeah, no, I should know what pi is. Um, that I do. That I should know. Um, fantastic. Um, great. So we have now um, discussed some of the real numbers. And um, would you guys say that the next logical step uh, to expand our ever-increasing knowledge of number systems would be complex numbers? Is that a... Is that the next thing we uh, should think about? Yes, I think that, that that's a good next step. Mm -hmm. um, would you lead us on, Elliot? Well, I mean, happy to, but I think Ella has some nice. Oh, nights. sure, sure. I, um, I don't want. Yeah, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. Ella, if you if you'd like to um, uh, say something about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so complex numbers are the next step. It's the next thing that we learn about in school. Most of us who did uh, A-level or Abitur will have, will have come across complex numbers. Um, and they're also known as imaginary numbers. And they got their name from Descartes, who called them imaginary because he, he believed they were wrong in some way and they didn't exist. Um, which is an interesting idea and something that, I think that's something really interesting to talk about if you don't mind, if you don't mind me taking us on another oh, slight please. segue uh, into something else. Um, Oh, I wrote this in my notes as the leading question, are complex numbers real? Which is, of course, terrible phrasing because we've just established complex numbers and real numbers are different things. Um, but I suppose the question that I really want to ask is, uh, do complex numbers exist? And the initial answer is always no, right? You, you look at these in school, you've just learned about real numbers. You've learned that you know, when you multiply two negative numbers together, when you square a negative number, it becomes positive. You square a positive number, it stays positive. There's no way you can take the square root of a negative number and have that exist and be real. Mm -hmm. So complex, so a complex number we define in terms of um, i, which is the square root of minus one. So i squared is going to equal minus and one. Why is it i? Uh, do, is, it, is that random? Oh, imaginary. Um, so I do believe i stands oh, for yeah, imaginary yeah, number. Of course, yeah, of course. imaginary. Yeah. Okay. So why do these exist? Um, how do they come about? Well. Um, we have this beautiful number system we've built up. And we say, okay, we have real numbers to describe everything in the world, but then we come to a problem. There's a theorem called the fundamental theorem of algebra. And I'll just start with this as one problem where, where complex numbers start coming up and being necessary to use. Um, so the, the fundamental theorem of algebra proven by Gauss in 1799 states that any non-constant polynomial with complex coefficients has a root in the complex numbers, which sounds really complicated, but you can basically take it to mean if we have a polynomial equation, so something like x squared plus 1 is 0, or x cubed plus 3x is 7, anything like that, anything with powers of x in it, there will exist at least one solution for x. And immediately you see now we have an issue, because x squared plus 1 is 0, that means x squared is equal to minus 1, then x would have to be the square root of minus 1, but that doesn't have a solution in the reals. The solution would have to be the square root of minus 1. And every root of a polynomial can be expressed as some real plus some complex component. So is the square root of minus one less valid or less real than integers and rationals, irrationals, or reals in general? Well, the thing is we use polynomials and other equations all the time in maths and physics and engineering. They're ridiculously useful. There are situations where by using complex numbers, you can find real number solutions. They just pop up in the world all the time. Um, so for example, if you imagine you have a pendulum, you can model its swinging motion using equations that describe the forces acting on this pendulum. 
And we want to find a solution to these equations. So an equation that says, that tells you x, the distance from the equilibrium point as some function of time. That's a solution. Then we have a way of seeing where this pendulum is at every point. Right? You put in a time, I tell you where it is. So we have a few different options for what happens. The first possibility is the system is overdamped, which means that the system tends to the equilibrium position into infinity and doesn't cross it again. So you can imagine if we have like a really rusty hinge and you lift this pendulum slightly to the side and you drop it and it just kind of really slowly moves back to the middle. In this case, the solution to the equation of motion is real. We've just got a real equation. But as is most often the case, if you can have underdamped motion, so the pendulum swings back and forth until eventually it comes to rest at the equilibrium point. In this case, if we solve these equations, we get complex solutions. But that describes a real phenomenon. So complex numbers arise all the time in situations to describe motion. They appear in solutions to simple equations of motion and can be reformulated to yield real results that tell us something about the physical world. Um, so why does this mean that they're real? Does, does it give them any more weight? Um, I think there's a really interesting comparison to be made here to negative numbers, because I think as Ala discussed earlier, if you imagine you're living in ancient Greece where numbers are considered in terms of units, so the number five is five times the unit length, seven is seven times the unit length, um, everything is considered geometrically. And in that context, negative numbers don't make any sense. The Greeks didn't really accept negative numbers, much like they didn't accept irrational numbers. And this held for centuries. So Descartes, who lived in the 17th century, also rejected negative roots of equations as false because they represented numbers less than nothing. If you think about it, if you, you live in a world where you have to count your cattle and how many bags of grain you have, how many fingers you have, then negative numbers don't really make any sense. What's less than nothing? What's too less than nothing? But we learn about negative numbers so early in school and they're useful all over the place in equations to describe motion. When we look at vectors and negative distances, when you're losing something, when you're in debt, you say you have minus $73 or something like that. So we've come to accept negative numbers as you know, useful and they exist because they appear in equations we use to describe nature all the time. And in exactly that same way, complex numbers appear in natural equations and their solutions. They're ridiculously helpful. So you can kind of take that same jump as with negative numbers and say, look, they appear in math everywhere and we use them and they're important. And so in some sense, they exist. In some sense, they're, oh, I, d I can't use the word real, but yeah, in some sense they exist. And I, I will come to an, the end of that long ramble there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, that was really, uh, really interesting. And, and it helped it helped me at least understand it uh, from a more direct point. So I, I so I'm assuming um, to, to get some some sort of um, progress uh, underway so that number systems were, um, would you guys say, um, are these number systems or different types of numbers? Do you, do you think are they discovered sort of they are there? Um, or do you think man creates them? And um, uh, or maybe that this is this also goes a little bit into what we discussed at the beginning. If it's whether it's real or not, I guess um, in that point, what, what do you what do you guys think? Well, I'm uh, maybe uh, grown old in the tooth now, but I, I very much think that it's uh, they're man's creations. That that's a way mm -hmm. to. Uh, Yes, avoid some of the, um, the philosophical uh, issues about this difference between like Platonism or um, Newtonianism or whatever, whether you're considering that objects exist in some higher realm, the platonic forms, and somehow you're accessing the forms, or whether, and this is the way mm -hmm. I think, you're playing a formal game and constructing these uh, imaginary numbers as just solutions to equations in a formal sense. 
Um, so I'm very much of the second view. Um, and again, I would say that what you know the, the 19th and 20th century of mathematical development more you know, is broadly speaking a move away from even worrying about you know do these objects exist in some higher sense towards uh, okay well we can construct them and we've got a man-made formal object and manipulate them and that'll be enough so um so that's my view but it's not the only view I agree in the sense that I think that numbers are mostly man-made. But at the same time, sometimes I think about what if aliens came one day to the Earth? Like, I wouldn't be able to believe that they didn't know about natural numbers or complex numbers. Like, for me, it's so hard to think that anyone who has dealt with mathematical problems have not used the same tools as we did. Hmm. So in that sense, I kind of believe that we also discovered numbers, not only we created them. Well, I, I, I should sort of chime in that you know, there are plenty of uh, languages of the world that have no word for any number higher than two. And these are not unsophisticated languages. They have many, many words for many other things. But the ability to you know differentiate between there being four things or seven things, whatever, has just not been an important differentiating uh, idea in the culture where this language grew. And so there's no word for any number bigger than three. Um, that doesn't mean that it's an unsophisticated culture, but it's a very different way of conceiving the world. I, I find that very interesting. Yeah, that is probably a... Um, um, it depends on, on the environment, as you said. So, for example, if you have many different tribes in, uh, in uh, arid regions they probably won't have a word for snow because they never encountered snow they didn't have to and so maybe if you know if you have cultures that didn't need the construct of a complicated math then they would also not create this um that's probably so so languages is deeply ingrained in culture and the question is how far math is cultural but again as as you uh told me earlier uh there's quite a cultural component too maths and and how it develops and what what's accepted and what isn't so i think that it's a it's a complex field um just to to um localize ourselves so um um ella talked about gauss that's the last um uh, so in, you said something about 1799 so complex numbers is that when complex numbers were um sorry if i have to ask again were discovered as it were um Or what's and what's the next step then? No, it wasn't actually. Uh, then I, I kind of used that theorem that was ah. proven proven by Gauss as an example of where you see that these complex numbers have to arise at some point. Um, I believe it was in the 16th century, um, and I'm sure Alad will have much much more detail on this. But uh, it was almost a sport at the time to solve more and more difficult polynomials, mm. um, and as we've established by giving an example of the fundamental theorem of algebra, you will sometimes get complex solutions to those. So there was an awareness that these numbers were around and they were used in the calculations also sometimes when there were real solutions to the polynomial. Um, but as to the rigorous definition, um, can I, can I, yeah, you could say the discovery I was Can I just quickly ask, um, I don't know if you defined it at the beginning, but I'd, as, as embarrassing as it sounds, I had to look up what 
polynomial was, but also because I think it's different in German, I hope so. Um, can you briefly explain to the layperson what, what you mean by polynomial? Oh, yeah, of course. So in, in this context, what I'm talking about when I say polynomial is just a an equation that has an unknown mm -hmm. in it. So classically, you will see that mm -hmm. called X um, that involves and that can also involve powers of mm. that unknown. So when I'm talking about a polynomial. I mean, an equation like, um, in fact, polynomial is just an expression like X squared plus 3X mm -hmm. plus 7 or X to the power of 98 minus 5X to the power of 3 that's also I a polynomial. See. So anything like that. And when you make it into an equation, so you have an, an equal sign mm -hmm. in there, you say x squared plus 3x is equal to 15, then those you can solve to find x. And that was what was of interest to many Italian mathematicians uh, around the 16th century. But I, I will entirely defer to Alice here. Well, no, it's entirely right what Alice been saying. I think the, the only thing I'll, I'll add is so yeah, Alice been recounting that these numbers first came in almost by accident from these solving algorithms for polynomial equations in the 16th century. And then it took like 200 years, you know, this theorem that Gauss, Eller also mentioned at the very end of the uh, 18th century. You know, that's 250 years after complex numbers were first, you know, introduced in a rather indirect way. And this was like two centuries of confusion. In, in the mathematical world of people trying to figure out how to deal with these objects in a rigorous way, how to integrate them with the other kinds of arithmetic that they've been doing for millennia. And yeah, it wasn't really until the beginning of the 19th century in which uh, period complex numbers began to be manipulated on a rigorous footing. I see. Thank you. Um, so now after that, uh, so I have um, looked at some of the other uh, number systems that came after that. Um, what is what is the the progress? Uh, what did mathematicians construct after um, the complex numbers, or is there anything else? Or did what, what was what were other discoveries that came after uh, what Ella has uh, described? Well, I can say a little bit, and then perhaps also deferred to uh, Alvaro. Um, uh, as Ella was saying, there's this thing called the fundamental theorem of algebra. And just to repeat what that says, if you have a polynomial and it has coefficients coming from the complex numbers, just so have 5x squared minus 3x plus 2 equals 0, but instead of 5, 3, and 2, you have some complex numbers. This theorem says that you get solutions that are also complex numbers. And so this process that we've been describing where you have to include more and more symbols, you have to include a square root of minus one into your mathematics in order to find solutions. This stops with the complex numbers. We have a highfalutin phrase for this. We say it's an algebraically closed field. So this whole sequence of expanding from whole numbers to rational numbers to real numbers to complex numbers that does stop with the complex numbers. But you can look within the complex numbers and find you know, sub-collections, subsets of particular kinds of complex numbers that uh, enjoy their own kind of rich structure. And this is what a lot of you know, number theory from Gauss onwards is, is about. So there are things that are, we have algebraic 
numbers, algebraic integers. Uh, these are two examples. Um, and I, I feel I've been hogging the floor a bit, so I, I wonder if uh, Alvaro or Ella want to talk a bit about algebraic numbers. Yeah, so first I would like to um, add this comment on how basically what we have been building in this podcast is like this kind of hierarchy where we had we started historically with natural numbers, then we moved to integers, then we moved to rationals, then to irrationals and rationals, that mean that is real numbers, and then to the complex numbers. So it's this kind of like kind of ladder we are building, we are climbing, and like each one, each set uh, contains the previous ones. So like all the complex numbers contains all the real numbers and such. And then I think like once we arrive at the complex numbers, we are basically or almost in the top of the ladder. So now it's just other numbers, number systems appear as inside the complex numbers. And I think that's where, um, where most of the numbers that we're going to talk about today uh, now are, are found. And going back to the algebraic numbers, so as Ella mentioned, we have these kind of polynomial equations. And if we consider uh, those polynomial equations with who has integer coefficients, then we have a very interesting kind of number, which are the algebraic numbers, which are numbers that can be found as solutions of these polynomial equations. And um, yeah, I don't know how much I should I talk about algebraic numbers because that's not really my thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really helpful. Um, that, that gives us a good overview. Um, Ella, do you want to add anything, or Alan? Well, I, I, I can talk more about the notes I wrote on this this uh, this subject if you if you like. Um, so, as Alvaro has defined for us what algebraic numbers are, and we numbers that we come across uh, a lot in school are algebraic numbers, like the square root of two. That's an algebraic number because it's a solution to the polynomial equation x squared minus two equals zero. Um, and indeed, so say these uh, Italian mathematicians of the 16th century who were solving higher degree polynomial equations where you have x cubed, cubic equations, or x to the four, quartic equations, they were also constructing algebraic numbers. Um, but, uh, and all the numbers that they were constructing could be formulated in terms of square roots, like the square root of two, but also with, say, cube roots. If you have a degree three polynomial, it would also involve cube roots. So say, you know, the cube root of five is some number, where if I multiply it by itself and multiply it by itself again, I get uh, five. Um, but in the early 19th century, a number of different mathematicians coming from various different angles realized that once you had degree five polynomials or more, um, then you could, could no longer describe algebraic numbers in this way. They could no longer be purely described in terms of square roots and cube roots and fifth roots and so on. If you had a degree five polynomial, that wasn't enough. And you know, it's far beyond the scope of this podcast to talk about the methods involved in that. But it turned out that the key 
was understanding the symmetry of the solutions to these polynomial equations and creating a mathematical language to talk about the symmetry of these solutions. And so a huge number of different fields in both mathematics and science today in which having a rigorous way of talking about transformations that preserve structure, symmetries in an object, all that began by thinking about algebraic numbers in the early 19th century. Awesome. Uh, really helpful. Um, so we are nearing the one hour mark. And at this point, um, I wanted to only close on um, one thing that Alad, you mentioned earlier, and then I would open the floor for any um, points you would like to raise or would have um, that we didn't get to. And Alad, you said something earlier about calculus and that we should, that we would get to that. Is, um, what, um, is that still something you would like to discuss? Uh, well, maybe very briefly, I think in, in things that Ella said earlier, it's, it's essentially come up, albeit we didn't actually perhaps use the word calculus. So the, um, the real numbers have a very useful property, which is that if I take a sequence of real numbers, which gets closer and closer together, you know, here's an example. If I take a half and then a third and then a quarter and then a fifth, And so on. Okay, these numbers are getting smaller and smaller, they're getting closer and closer together. We can perhaps see intuitively that they get closer and closer to zero. Okay, and we call zero the limit of the sequence. Now, the real numbers have a useful property that no matter which sequence I take, as long as they get closer and closer together, this limit exists. And the rational numbers, for instance, don't have this property. We say the rational numbers are incomplete, but the real numbers are complete. And this limiting process turns out to be a very convenient way to talk about infinitesimal processes, to talk about things like speed, which is sort of the infinitesimal distance divided by time calculation. And what How fast is a car going at this instant? Well, it's going to be some limits of average speeds over shorter and shorter intervals. Anyway, so this limit process of the real numbers turns out to be a very convenient property to build up notions of calculus, notions of taking uh, uh, instant speeds of, uh, of moving objects. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the real numbers are extremely useful. Thank you. Uh, wonderful. Uh, one thing I just just came to my mind because we've talked about we've talked about a lot about we've talked a lot about um, ancient Greece and Western uh, mathematics in that sense. And I think Alvaro at the beginning talked about I think it was you uh, about zero. And I don't know I don't remember if I read this in one of your notes or on Wikipedia or somewhere that the, the zero was maybe an Indian concept. Um, so I don't want this to be all too Western focused, but is mathematics, at least, you know, the traditional mathematics uh, until maybe the 21st or 20th century, is that mostly a Western um, uh, innovation or is it actually uh, an Eastern innovation that we appropriated as it were, or is it a um, harmonious confluence of um, brilliant minds that created a beautiful whole? What is your your all's take on that. Again, I open the floor for everyone, anyone. Well, I mean, I 
been speaking quite a lot, so you can cut all this out, but I'll just get the thing going. Um, we shouldn't forget that the fact that Greek mathematics even survives into Renaissance Europe in the you know, 14th and 15th centuries AD is because it was preserved often in Arabic translation by the Islamic empire, in particular the, 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 mm. the scholarship that happened in Baghdad between, okay, roughly 800 and 1100, 1200 AD. So, even expanding the story that much, it's not just the case that classical European mathematics survived and that's become the, the, the antecedent of modern mathematics done, done today. That's just not true at all. Um, a thing that I should admit that I know much less about is the, what communication there was between the uh, Indian schools of Brahmagupta in the kind of seventh century AD and also the long history of Chinese mathematics, how much Silk Road communication there was from those centers of learning into Europe at various periods of time. I don't know if Ella Rovara know something about that. I, I should admit that I just really don't. No, I don't know about it, but my guess is that they develop kind of independently and then with time and with commerce and how people were traveling from one place to another, eventually they all came into contact. I know that uh, when the Arabic uh, came to the to Spain in the past, they brought a uh, great development in mathematics and in science with them. So I imagine that uh, that's how in many other places was as well, that cultures came into contact and the best um, mathematical advances were like implemented more for practical reasons than maybe for theoretical or like interesting reasons. Well, maybe I mean the 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 symbols we know for the the numbers one two three four five they're Arabic symbols, but you know that there are things that were known in India in the sixth seventh century uh, AD that were not known in Britain, say, until the 17th century. It's like things like Taylor series for sine and cosine. Um, this, okay, perhaps this is uh, beyond my ability to explain uh, without visuals, but it turns out that these trigonometric functions, this is where you take a ratio of uh, the various lengths of a right-angled triangle, Okay, you can express these as these ratios, but they have another life as actually an infinite sum of polynomial expressions. <laughs> so this is a link between what we've been talking about as well. And these things are now called Taylor series because mm -hmm. mathematician Taylor in the late 17th century created a kind of general theory for uh, these series. Um, but certain special cases were known a millennia before in India. And I'm not sure that it, you know, until you know, 20th century scholarship, these things were connected. So I, it's, I think it's been a complicated story of which ideas got transmitted and which didn't. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like mo most of it got lost in the sense that the practical things probably was transmitted. But if people were not an experts or were not keen to the concept of Taylor series, they probably didn't share it or didn't find interesting to share it with other cultures or maybe like 
to be appropriated by other cultures sometimes because you know some of these contacts were not like pacific contacts but like violent ones i guess one thing i wonder about uh, sometimes is that we always speak about ancient greece rather than any roman um math Maybe maybe that's just me because I don't know a lot. Uh, but I just know the only thing about about mathematics in Rome is basically that uh, we had to abandon Roman numerals because they didn't really work for um, calculation. Uh, is that is that accurate that that the Romans didn't really improve much upon mathematics, or did they actually contribute? Um, I, have you ever heard about anything where they did some important stuff? I have to admit that I haven't. Like, obviously, they, they were great engineers, but they did not seem to inherit yeah. any of the the Greeks' interest in the kind of logical underpinnings of mathematical proof. Um, hmm. And you know, they they murdered Archimedes, so that's against their uh, against their ledger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. Interesting. Well, awesome. So this is basically what I had um, planned directly, but I also realized that we haven't discovered, uh, discussed any everything that you guys put down in uh, your diligent notes. So this is why I would just invite you all um, to just let me know what you would have liked to talk about, which we didn't get around to, um, where I maybe um, uh, veered off course too much and we didn't get um, to talk about an interesting thing. I don't know maybe Ella. Um, uh, what what do you think? Is there anything you would have liked to cover or uh, talk about? So I, I wrote way too much in my notes, so there's 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 no point going on to to the uh, the kind of piatics and stuff. Maybe one fact that I think just more people should know about. I don't know whether this can be worked into some of our early discussion. Is the fact that various aspects of mathematical developments that we usually think of as Greek ideas were actually far older. Like the idea that Pythagoras was actually probably the last person in the Mediterranean to learn of Pythagoras' theorem. Um, because you know, we have the clay tablet from you know, 1800 BC in Babylon, which has a list of Pythagorean triples, what we now call Pythagorean triples of a squared plus b squared equals c squared. The sum of the squares of the two uh, sides of the right-angled triangle is the length of the hypotenuse. You know, this is over a millennia before Pythagoras lived. Um, these things were known about in uh, the Babylonian Empire. Okay. Well, uh, one thing, uh, I don't know, this might be the last time I have um, a collection of brilliant mathematicians right before me, and I don't know if this fits here or not, um, but I read some somewhere in one of the Simon Singh books that there are different types of infinity, and I, I forgot already why that is. Um, is that anything, has that anything to do with what we t discussed, and uh, does it make sense to discuss this? This is actually one of my one of my favorite topics. I've derailed a lot of podcast discussions. Um, yeah, the idea here is that, well, we know that there are infinitely many natural numbers, for example. Uh, there are infinitely, prime, infinitely many prime numbers, infinitely many rational numbers. Um, logically, everyone would tend to agree because you can just keep counting forever. One, two, three. That's, that's definitely an infinity. Um, so the question is, are all infinities the same size? Well, how on earth do you determine whether two infinities are the same size? Um, 
what is infinity plus infinity? How do you define such a thing? Um, if anyone is, is interested in that, um, Hilbert's, Hilbert's Hotel, I believe it's called. Yeah, is a really interesting, uh, an interesting explanation of why infinity plus infinity is infinity. And in fact, all three of those are the same size, um, but maybe something not to get into here. Um, the idea is that if we can match up, if we have two different lists and both of them are infinitely long, and we can match up one element from the first list to an element from the second list. And again, the next element from the first list to the next element from the second list. And we have a system of doing that so that every single element in each list has been matched with one from the other list. Then clearly those two must be the same size. So if we take kind of as a baseline that the natural numbers are, are an infinity, we have infinitely many natural numbers. Then we say, okay, let's find what are other what size are other infinities by seeing if we can match them up one to one to the natural numbers one, two, three, four, five, etc. And we find that um, actually there are the same number of natural numbers or the size of the infinity of natural numbers is the same as the size of the infinity of integers, which is counterintuitive, sounds crazy. How can, you know, zero, one, two, three, four, five have exactly, you know, that list have exactly the same number of elements as, you know, every all the negative numbers, minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, minus one, zero, one, two, three, four, five, and all the positive numbers as well. But there is a way of matching them up so that you get one element from that first list of just the positive numbers matched to an element from the list of negative and positive numbers, and you will in the end have matched up every single one from the first to the second list. So those two are the same infinity. We find that rational numbers are also the same infinity. So rational numbers are numbers you can write as a fraction, um, which is really interesting and ex extremely counterintuitive. And if you're interested in that mapping, that's also something that's probably best Googled because there's a nice visual for it. Um, but we find that irrational numbers cannot be listed so that you can match them one-to-one -to, -one to the natural numbers. There must always be more. If you say, um, here I have a complete list, so it's a proof by contradiction. If you say here I have a complete list of all the irrational numbers and I've listed them up, so I have the first, the second, the third, etc., so that I can match them to the number one, two, three, four, five, six. So I'm trying to match all the natural numbers to all the irrational numbers. You can then always construct yourself another irrational number that is not in your original list. And so that infinity must be bigger than the infinity of natural numbers. So we call this an infinity the smaller infinity, the infinity of natural numbers is called Aleph null, Aleph from the Hebrew letter, and the larger is called Aleph one. And that's, I, I also think that's a really fun proof um, that you can't list the irrational numbers like that. Interesting, amazing. Um, yeah, wonderful. Uh, th that is sort of what I, um, a little bit of what I remembered, uh, quite a bit um, better explained. Alad, uh, did you want to add on to this? Uh, sure, very little to add to Ella's wonderful explanation, but just to put a bit of historical context. So this way of thinking about infinite sets was introduced by uh, Cantor uh, in uh, the final two and a half decades of the 19th century. And it was extremely controversial in the mathematical uh, community. So the, the two leading mathematicians of the day were Hilbert and Poincaré. Hilbert has already come up in our story. Poincaré was the in French mathematician of the age. And they had almost diametrically opposed views about whether this constituted a valid mathematical argument, uh, a worthwhile endeavor, in a sense. Hilbert was very positive. 
Gilbert thought that this was an astonishing new insight into real numbers and into uh, mathematical constructions. Frankray, I think he said, you know, it, Cantor's ideas were like a nightmarish aberration that he hoped mathematicians would soon wake up from, or something like that. So Frankray was not a fan of Cantor's <laughs> mathematics. As you, you can see, yeah, Hilbert won this one as well. We, in most first year uh, uh, number or sets courses, certainly uh, in the UK, we would teach Cantor's diagonal argument, which Ella has just described. Um, what it, oh, Kronecker also didn't like what Cantor had to say. Kronecker is the one who said, God created the integers, all else is the work of man. And he didn't mean it's a compliment. <laughs> so he, he felt that these, uh, these arguing with infinite sets was, was a diabolical thing to do. Um, as a final thing, thing I'll, I'll say, bring us more up to date into the 20th century. Ella talked about uh, Aleph naught and Aleph 1, this size of the natural numbers and the size of the real numbers. Okay, but the question then begs, is there some infinite set with a size strictly in between? With a, It's a bigger infinity than the natural numbers, but a smaller infinity than the real numbers. Okay, this was called the continuum hypothesis. And, you know, some people thought it was true, some people thought it was false. The actual uh, veracity of the thing was more astonishing than I think anyone could have guessed. It turned out that this proposition is independent of all the other axioms of mathematics. Right, so that's an astonishing claim. It's basically that there's an entirely consistent mathematical world in which there is an infinity between these two infinities, and there's a completely consistent mathematical world in which there is not. So this astonishing theorem of pure logic was proved by Paul Cohen, building on work of Kurt Gödel uh, in the mid-1960s, and uh, won him the Field Medal, which is the highest prize in mathematics. So, um, so there you go, that's just a few historical bits on top of Ella's uh, explanation. Super. All right. Well, that was really interesting, and um, you guys have uh, truly made uh, mathematics more approachable. I think to the general audience, that's uh, sort of what we aimed here, uh, what, what, what we aimed at. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, so thank you so much, guys. Awesome, awesome. Thank, yeah, thank you, Alad, for creating this in the first place. And uh, yeah, so all right. Then I wish you guys a great Sunday and enjoy and have a good start yeah, in your week. Thank you for hosting. This was great. I look forward to hearing the final thing. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thanks to you for organizing it. So thank you guys for listening to this episode of In Our Spare Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you found it enjoyable and would like to listen to another one, please just uh, take your time and choose any one of the other episodes we've already uploaded or subscribe to the podcast and you will get the very next one when it comes out. Other than that, we are always happy to give you uh, get your feedback so you know um, there's no direct way to give feedback on the website apparently however you can uh, find me on the official Oxford website um, and uh, just write me an email there if you'd like or write it to Oxford podcasts and we're very happy to receive your feedback um, positive and constructive <laughs> 
Other than that, thank you for taking the time and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.